Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on August 20th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... I call this chapter Houston. We have a fungus. <laughs> that's renowned writer Mary Roach, author of the new book, Packing for Mars, the Curious Science of Life in the Void. Her book tour recently brought her to New York City, where she gave a talk at the Barnes & Noble on the Upper West Side. In part one of the podcast, coming right up, we'll hear that talk. Then in part two, Mary and I discuss further the general unpleasantness of being in space. So without any further ado, here's Mary Roach. Thank you. Um, I'm I'm sorry I don't have any beverages. I did give thought to serving Tang today. Um, but you have to carry, it comes in these large containers, you know, and you pack it in your bag, and then you don't have the carry-on thing. Um but anyway, a tang, you should be interested to know, is not invented by NASA. It's a commercial off-the-shelf product that they brought on board. NASA actually takes a bunch of um, commercial products straight off the supermarket shelf into space. One of them I found out, um, the, the diapers that the astronauts wear under their spacewalking suits, which I assumed were some very high-tech uh, NASA-developed thing. In fact, I, I asked the public affairs people, well, what, what's the, the brand that you use? And it is... No longer available, but it was an adult diaper called Rejoice. <laughs> Who names a, an adult diaper Rejoice? Um, anyway, my book is uh, is not your average space book. Most space books that I've seen tend to be uh, a lot of heroics and bravery, and they all boldly going and boldly coming back. You know, you had. Uh, Apollo 13 Commander Lovell and his crew fighting for their lives on the way to the moon when there's an explosion. And I actually did interview uh, Commander Lovell, but it was it was about uh, Gemini 7. And Gemini 7 was a a rehearsal for the moon. It was a two week mission, getting ready for going to the moon, which is a two week sort of round trip thing. And uh, they were looking at, among other things, the effects on the body of restricted hygiene. You know, what happens to your skin if you're wearing a space suit uh, 24-7? They were going to be wearing the suit for all day and all night, sleeping in it, you know, being hot and sweaty. And, you know, is it too much to ask of human beings to do this? And um, I call this chapter Houston. We have a fungus. <laughs> uh, I have, there's this memorable point in the mission transcript um, where the flight surgeon comes on the microphone. He's talking to Commander Borman. It actually says, uh, Gemini 7, this is the flight surgeon. Have you had any dandruff problem up there, Frank. That's a word you really don't expect in a NASA mission transcript. Also, lotion. Two guys orbiting the Earth discussing skin care. <laughs> Commander Borman, Frank Borman, he's a man's man. He would sometimes just completely ignore the flight surgeon. The flight surgeon would want to say, are you running out of moisturizer? Like, no reply. He's going to feel like it was compromising the overall manliness of the mission. You had to kind of feel bad for them um, because when you don't shower, normally, you know, you, when you shed cells, and the, you know, you go, you, you, they build up, and then you take a shower, and they're washed away. Well, when you don't shower, these cells build up, and you have dandruff. And in space, you don't; it never falls to the ground where the cleaning person can come and sweep it away. It just kind of hovers. And I actually, I talked to Command, uh, Captain Lovell about this. I believe my exact words were. Was it just like a snow globe in there? <laughs> he said, Mary, you're investigating a rather unusual aspect of space flight. Anyway, so this book is about the astronaut life, life in the void, but it's also about um, 
it's about life in space, but also space on Earth, simulated space travel, because space is such a hostile, unusual, foreign place. And because it's so expensive to do things in space, anything that happens up there gets rehearsed, simmed, as they say at NASA, down here uh, in these delightfully bizarre uh, simulations. <clears throat> By way of example, um, the toilet. Okay, you don't take gravity for granted. All right, what, what, you need water on an Earth toilet, but you also need gravity because gravity is what gives you that holy grail of the waste management department at NASA, good separation. Okay, <laughs> because the mass as it is egested. This is my favorite new euphemism. Instead of the opposite of ingest is egest. So as you egest, uh, the growing mass of the material has a weight on Earth. It has weight, and it pulls away and breaks off on its own and ventures forth. Well, it doesn't do that up there. It just kind of hovers. <laughs> so it's up to the toilet to actually to, to provide uh, the, the separation. So it works like a shop vac. It's this airflow that... Here's another fun euphemism, entrains the bolus. So it's kind of, you know, encourages it along its way. Um, but how much airflow? You know, you don't want to send the thing up there and say, well, hopefully that'll be enough and we'll just wait and see because that's very, very expensive. These toilets are, it's like the size of a washing machine. And, um, <clears throat> you, you don't want to just sort of cross your fingers and hope that it works. So you haul it over to Ellington Field and you test it on a zero-gravity flight. Now, this is a plane that kind of goes in this flight path like this, and as it goes over and down, you have 22 seconds of zero gravity. Think about this. <laughs> Not too hard, maybe. <laughs> so you've got the poor you know, volunteer from the Waste Management Systems Department has 22 seconds in which to produce. And that's not easy for a lot of people. Um, and that is why NASA uh, also has a department. NASA Ames has a couple of engineers who work on simulants. And we don't need to really go too far into the simulants. Um, they did not just use what the, the diaper industry has their own sort of testing materials. And they tend to use the disconcertingly appetizing things like pumpkin pie mix, brownie mix, uh, mashed potatoes, things that have the right rheology, the right consistency and elasticity. But NASA... Um, NASA took it a step further and actually invented their own, not using any foods. I'm going to, um, I'm going to read a section. All right, this is Apollo 16, and we have Charlie Duke and um, uh, John Young, and they've been out and about collecting rocks on the moon, as was their job, samples, geological samples, and now they're back in the lunar module, their home, after a day out and about. And there's a radio debriefing with, with mission control. And out of the blue, and this is, you know, there are transcripts. This is where I found this. Out of the blue, Young declares, I got the farts again. I got them again, Charlie. I don't know what the hell gives them to me. I think it's acid in the stomach. Following Apollo 15, in which low potassium levels were blamed for the heart arrhythmias of the crew, NASA had put potassium-laced orange grapefruit and other citrus tang drinks on the menu. Young kept going. It is all there in the mission transcript. I mean, I haven't eaten this much citrus fruit in 20 years. And I'll tell you one thing, in another 12 f***ing days, I ain't ever eaten any more. And if they offer to serve me potassium with my breakfast, I'm going to throw up. I like an occasional orange. I really do. But I'll be damned if I'm going to be buried in oranges. Moments later, mission control comes on the line and provides Young with yet more fodder for indigestion. Capsule communicator. Orion, this is Houston. Yes, sir? Okay, you have a hot mic. 
Oh, says Young. How long have we had that? Ah, uh, it's been on during the debriefing. <laughs> the day after Young's comments hit the press, the governor of Florida issued a statement in defense of his state's key crop, which, <laughs> which Charlie Duke paraphrases in his memoir. The statement reads, It is not our orange juice that is causing the trouble. It's an artificial substitute that does not come from Florida. <laughs> in fact, it was apparently the potassium and not the orange juice. The, quote, coefficient of flatulence or orange juice, to use the terminology of USDA flavus researcher Edwin Murphy, <clears throat> a panelist at the 1964 Conference on Space Nutrition in Space and Related Waste Problems, the coefficient of flatus for this is low. Murphy reported on research he had done using an, quote, experimental bean meal fed to volunteers who had been rigged via a rectal catheter to outgas into a measurement device. <laughs> he was interested in individual differences, not just the overall volume of flatus, but in the differing percentages of constituent gases. Owing to differences in, a, in intestinal bacteria, half the population produces no methane. This makes them attractive as astronauts, not because, meth not because <laughs> methane stinks, it is odorless, but because it's flammable. Murphy had a unique suggestion for the NASA Astronaut Selection Committee. Quote, the astronaut may be selected from that part of our population producing little or no methane or hydrogen, hydrogen also being explosive, and a very low level of hydrogen sulfide and other malodorous trace flatus constituents not, not yet identified. Further, since some individual astronauts may vary in the degree of flatulent reaction to a given weight of food, Individuals can be chosen who demonstrate high resistance to intestinal upset and flatus formation. They were, they were actually going to have uh, intestinal flora and, and digestion traits uh, be, uh, there was talk of having that actually be part of the astronaut selection process. In, uh, in China, if you have bad breath, they won't, that isn't something that's considered, just for the basic reason that, you know, you can't open the window, you've got the same air circulating over and over, and so... Uh, you can't, in Japan, they, they don't want astronauts to snore because it wakes people up. Now, I, I uh, on this same topic, I, I called or I emailed an astronaut named, I, I, named Roger Crouch. I had um, heard a rumor that, in, that astronauts, one of the pastimes on all-male flights was to use intestinal gas like rocket propellant to, quote, launch themselves across the mid-deck. <laughs> now... I questioned the scientific veracity of that, and I contacted Crouch. <clears throat> he, he wrote back, quote, The mass and velocity of the expelled gas, he said in an email that has forever after endeared the man to me, is very small compared to the mass of the human body. Thus, it was unlikely that it could accelerate a 180-pound astronaut. He had actually done the math. <laughs> <laughs> Crouch pointed out that an ex exhaled breath doesn't propel an astronaut in any direction, and the lungs hold about six liters of air, versus the fart, which, as we learned from Dr. Murphy, holds at most about three soda cans worth. Or the average person's, anyway. Quote, this is a quote, again, from the astronaut Roger Crouch. My genes have blessed me with an extraordinary ability to expel some of the byproducts of digestion. So given that, I thought it should be tested. In what I thought was a voluminous and rapidly expelled purge, I failed to move noticeably. <laughs> Crouch was heading to Cape Canaveral and promised to ask around for some other astronauts' input, but so far no one is, as they say, spilling the beans. <laughs> so I, um, there are a million things that I could talk about. Uh, I would love to 
the other night when I opened it up for questions, we went to just some really interesting places. So I would love to encourage, if people have questions, if you don't have any questions at all, I can keep yammering. But do people have things that they're really curious about? Because it's really, the book is really, you could call this book the wrong stuff. It's about all of the, um, it's all the little things that fall through the cracks. It's the, um, the all the ways that zero gravity uh, renders your life strange and difficult. Uh, I mean, like everything that you do and every every everything you bring up, there, everything has to be rethought, relearned. You know, the astronauts are these high achieving, top of their class individuals, and essentially they go back to preschool. They have to learn how to use the, the toilet. They have to learn how to eat. They have to learn how to cross the room. You know, it takes floating. I experienced weightlessness and on uh, that uh, they call it the vomit comet. Um, well. <laughs> They being me and others. NASA actually, when we were there, they, they said, um, no one is to refer to this as the vomit comet. We are now calling it the weightless wonder, <laughs> which kind of makes you vomit. <laughs> so it's that, you know, that plane. It, you're up there and you're and floating. It, being weightless is this wonderful experience. It's, it's, it's delightful, but it's very hard, very, very hard to control uh, where you're going. I mean, I was up there uh, with the NASA has something called the Student Flights Opportunity Program, where aerospace students compete for a chance to go on a weightless flight and do their experiments. They build these rigs, and they're you know testing electromagnetic docking devices or zero gravity welding. And I was the journalist who was supposed to be reporting on this one team, and um, of course I was just up above them going wee. <laughs> and I can You're supposed to hold on with a strap because this is NASA, and they want to you know make sure you don't have too much fun. <laughs> so I'm holding with a strap, which makes you kind of you reach the end of your tether, and I would head out over like the airspace over the University of Kansas students. And in order to move back, I'd put my foot down on the edge of their rig, and the guy, the, you know, the head of the program goes, stop kicking their experiment. <laughs> so I got into some trouble, but I, I really didn't care, because it was a tremendously fun experience. <laughs> and I have no idea why I even I even brought that up. But, oh, well, zero gravity, yeah, just that it, uh, you name a body part, it does something weird to it. Um, name a body part. All right, name a, just, let's try it. Name a body part. No, in public. Come on, bring it on, bring it on. Boobs? Boobs? Okay, boobs. All right, boobs. Ladies and gentlemen, we have boobs. All right. Um, this is a good one because I can tell you what, the, what uh, one astronaut called the space beauty treatment, which is, okay, in zero gravity, more of your blood, your bodily, bodily fluid, is migrating to the upper part of your body. Uh, less of it's down below. So you have um, more fluid puffing out the wrinkles. You have your organs tend to migrate up a little bit, so your waist is smaller. Your boobs don't sag. No sagging. Uh, your hair is fuller. Uh, it, uh, so uh, what else? I think that was about the extent of the, the space beauty treatment. However, bear in mind, I've also heard this called puffy face chicken leg syndrome. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And plus, a flight suit is not a very you no. Know, nobody can tell that your waist is smaller. Your boobs are more pert because you're wearing this sort of well, no, you're, no, they were wearing polo shirts and stuff. Like that. Okay, boobs, that was good. Any, any, anything else? Any other? Yes. How long can a person live in zero gravity? Um, well, there's reasons why you don't want to spend too long in zero gravity. Because what happens is your your bones and your muscles, since you don't need them to walk around, your body basically says use it or lose it. You know, and starts dismantling them, and you get a lot of bone loss. So for a Mars mission, I've heard from a third to a half. Uh, uh, you know, loss of bone bone mass, which was like the equivalent of being paraplegic, being in a wheelchair. So that plus 
that's that's the that's the the big concern with flow. I mean, you can adapt as long as you stayed floating. You know, if if that, if that became what you were going to do forever, then that'd be fine. But once you start, you wanted to start walking again, that could be problematic. So, but but theoretically, you could keep living in zero gravity. It's not, uh, you know, like your immune system is a little uh, compromised because you have less blood, therefore less immune defenses. Your body thinks that because the blood all goes up here when the blood volume sensors up here, it sort of you shed. Well, that's another thing. You lose weight because you uh, shed fluid. Yeah. Did, did you find in your research any evidence that there had been uh, romantic activity? <laughs> <laughs> there, well, there are two. There are two missions, and that, that most of the rumors revolve around. One of them was a um, it was in in, this, in in Russia. It was uh, Valery Polyakov and Elena Kondakova, who's quite a hot chick. And uh, there was rumors. There's a photograph of them. You know, sort of flirting, and he's throwing bubbles of water, you know, spheres of water. You can't really have a water fight because it doesn't get very far. Um, and I interviewed these cosmonauts in Star City, and I asked them about that. And he said, "Yeah, we kept saying Valerie, which is the guy. Valerie, did you have sex? What guy?" He goes, "Don't ask me this question." Said, well, the other thing going on is that Elena Kondakova is married to um, a, a, another astronaut, so that would be a little difficult. So. Don't know for sure. They say no. And the other one is a shuttle mission. It was an astronaut couple who went out and, and on the sly got married before their mission. They were they were dating and then they got married. NASA doesn't send married couples into space, not out of prudery so much as if it's a you know if there was an explosion and both both of them were killed, it would be so much of a loss to the families. And and because uh, if you had a situation where you had to choose between the mission and your spouse. You would probably choose your spouse, and NASA would rather you focus on the mission. So they, so couples don't tend to fly. But these two got up there, and uh, they don't talk about it, and NASA doesn't really comment on it. My guess is that they did not, just because uh, they'd never fly again. It would be it, it, who? So it would leak. Somebody would say. Somebody would. Somebody else on the shuttle, I'm sure, would tell somebody else. People can't keep secrets. This is the thing. Human nature says that if somebody had sex up there, somebody would know. And that's what I, I've explained that to people. Like my agent goes, well, so surely they've had sex. And I said, no. They, think about being an astronaut. You train for so long. You know, you've got it's this incredible devotion to your career. And you, you know, you, do you really want to put that? Do you want to risk all that? And he goes, mm, I don't know. It might be worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you say it would leak. You mean that somebody would still be? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Also, it would be problematic, wouldn't it? In terms of oh, zero gravity sex. Yeah, privacy. Well, there's the airlock, maybe, I think. The airlock, I'm guessing. Uh, but yes. But Well, yeah, well, I interviewed, because you can't, it, you know, it's a little difficult to get public NASA Public Affairs to return an email that says zero-gravity intercourse. Um, I, I talked to marine biologists who study the mating habits of animals who have sex while floating. Uh, seals, earless seals, and otters specifically, and dolphins, and um, essentially zero uh, gravity is your friend when it comes to sex because you, you want something to push against. Like these animals tend to go down, you know, to the bottom to have something to push against. Uh, so, uh, but I brought that up with I think it was Roger Crouch, the, that very kind astronaut who was talking about the the, um, the farts in space. It's probably so regretted speaking to him. <laughs> he. I said, so well, wouldn't you just push the person away from you? Wouldn't it be very difficult? And he said, he said, 
No, I mean, you just start out like the way people start out, kind of fumbling and not knowing what they're doing, and you get better by experience, and if all else fails, you get a roll of duct tape. (laughs) 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 Yes. They, they, showers don't work because uh, the, the water comes out and it goes a little way and then it starts forming a big sphere. Um, and if you hold the shower head really close so you can try to keep, head off the, the blob from forming, then you get little pieces ricocheting off and they have to chase those all down. So uh, I think it was Alan Bean said they just decided it just wasn't worth it. There was a shower once. So what they do, they uh, use moist towelettes. Yeah, and, and dry shampoo. That's what That's what they use, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Well, that there was a big concern back before they sent up Alan Shepard and John Glenn in the beginning of, of the space program. They because no one knew what does zero what happens when you take away gravity. You know, will the blood still flow? And there's all this hand wringing that went on. And one of the big concerns was, will the eyeball change shape, and the astronauts won't be able because if your eyeball changes shape, it changes where the you know the focus hit, it misses where it's supposed to hit the retina. I used to think, wow, what was that like to be John Glenn? It was kind of like going to the eye doctor because he had this snell and eye chart and there was an astigmatism device that so they were doing every like few minutes he had to look over at the eye chart and make sure his vision wasn't deteriorating. But as far as I know, the only, um, the only effect, they're now finding that weightlessness uh, has had a bit of, is having an effect on um, this pressure, increased pressure on the optic nerve. And so that's something that's recent, just recently come up, but up until that point, they didn't, like, vision is not, acuity is an effect. Yes, green shirt, yeah. How do you control that everybody doesn't sleep together and when sleep together have sex? You mean sleep together, have sex, or? No, 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 oh. Have to sleep. oh, you mean how do they, uh, well, they have little sort of bivouac bags that they can crawl into, and they're hooked on. They do, yes, yes, they used to, I think they used to stagger it, and I believe now, they because they've, they've imposed uh, sort of an earth-based rhythm to sleep rather than trying to make somebody stay awake and then somebody else sleep. So there is kind of a pull down the shades, okay, nighty-night, we're all sleeping now. And uh, But it's it's really must be tough. You hear, if you watch NASA TV, and I'm the kind of geek that loves to watch NASA TV, which is sometimes just raw footage, but you'll hear these announcements where all the astronauts are entering the pre-sleep phase for one hour, and then at 11.57, they will enter the sleep phase. Like, who goes to sleep, like, at 11.57, just like that? And then they awake them at exactly eight hours later. And so sleep meds are involved. Definitely some sleep meds, yeah. 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 Yeah, right, right. Well, the uh, the other thing is that the um, that sh- the shuttle toilet sounds like a jet taking off. I mean, you, if you have to get up in the middle of the night and go, first of all, you're you're knocking into people, waking up, and then the, the, you will wake everybody up. So that's another thing that's interfering with sleep. Yeah, um, I don't know how they work because uh, it takes a long time. I, I I tried out. There's a training toilet at, at, at Johnson Space Center, and there's a list of instructions. You know. You know, remove this valve, st- you know, push this lever here. I mean, it's that long. So it is a, like, it, it's not a speedy process. So I, I don't know how they do that. Good question. Yeah. How have the experiments changed? Well, the experiments have, you know, in the early days, it was, they were pretty basic because it, it was, you know, the Mercury mission was just 
Let's see if we can get them up there and get them back down. Gemini was, let's see if they can survive for two weeks. What'll happen? You know, these, can you put people in such a cramped space? Will, you know, what are we going to feed them? How do we deal with the fact that there is no toilet? I mean, so it was working out all of the logistics for a moonshot. And then the moon became, that's when the first scientists didn't go up till Apollo, the last Apollo lunar mission. That's the first time somebody flew who wasn't just a flyer. It was actually the first time that science was, and it, you know, planetary geology, that sort of stuff. And, and now the International Space Station has been lots of studies on how do we live for a long time in space? You know, how do, you know, ex, what kind of exercise helps them, you know, keep their bones from disappearing? And there's been some studies on reproduction and con conception, in, not, you know, rats, you know, on pregnancy, and how does that affect birth, that sort of thing. Uh, so it's a whole a whole range of things. But really, the space station, International Space Station has kind of been an exercise in global cooperation, so all these different countries involved. It's really preparing for going on to Mars. It, on the, you know, the large scale, at a glance, is how do we live for a long time, get along, stay healthy, and uh, thrive in space. Okay, green shirt. I did look at, yeah, yeah, I was over at Star City. The Russians, you know, here there, they have this, this something called a bed rest facility where you, they're studying bone loss. It, it's a mimic of weightlessness to have people lie in bed for three months. They have one over there, but they're on a big water bed. So they always have, it's always like little differences. The, um, the Russians have a much more, if it's not broken, don't fix it. If it's working, just leave it. Whereas at NASA, things tend to be very over-engineered and very carefully considered. I have this little, the press office gave me a little pin, a little, uh, like it was, you know, an Aries rocket or something. They have it that had like a little blinking light on the front, and you turn it over, and it was this elaborate, complicated six solar cells and a panel, and it was like, it just sort of summed up NASA right there. <laughs> Whereas in the Soviet, you know what I mean, in Russia, it would have been a safety pin on the back. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, uh, up on the, the waste produced, you mean like garbage and human waste? Yeah. Well, they, uh, because we're just orbiting the Earth, they, they can take the garbage back down to Earth. But on a mission to Mars, one of the things they would use it for, and I'm talking about biological waste, feces, um, that could, on the way back, you could use that because hydrocarbons are good radiation shielding. You would line the capsule make these, you could make tiles. There's a, at NASA Ames actually have this device where you can make tiles that would contain fecal material. It's like an easy bake oven. <laughs> and you make these tiles and you would uh, line the capsule. So the thinking is on the way to Mars, you would use your food. You have it all lining um, the interior of the, um, you know, the module that you're living in. So you'd fly to Mars in a can of food and then you'd fly home in a can of shit. <laughs> As the president of the Mars Institute told me. <laughs> yes. Did you undergo any psychological tests? Yeah, I, I failed. Um, <laughs> the, the, yeah, uh, there's a um, project called Mars 500 in Moscow, that which is uh, it's an isolation chamber, and they have these uh, volunteers and astronaut candidate, cosmonaut candidates, and and they put them in and observe them and see how they get along. And I applied to be part of the. There was a three month run up to that just to work out the kinks and I applied and because it was an international thing and I, I made it to the first round because there were very few women who had applied and they said okay well you'll, you'll be getting a phone call I said okay well, I'm sure excited and at four in the morning one night the phone rang and I sort of stagger out of bed and it's the European Space Agency person 
who is, you know, recruiting. And they say, yes, we're calling from the European Space Agency. And, and I go, it's like four in the, mo- I'm sorry, it's four, it's four in the morning. And I, I did not take any, make any effort to hide my irritation. She said, thank you, asked me a couple of questions. And I found out later that was part of the test and I had failed. And one of the, because I was speaking to a guy who, um, is familiar with the selection process, and he said they do that kind of stuff all the time because they don't want, if you know you're being tested, you behave very responsibly and maturely, and for me, you know, unlike myself. Uh, but if you don't know, then you don't know you're being tested, then your true colors show. He said they're always doing stuff like they'll call up an astronaut candidate and say, I'm so sorry, we've lost some of your medical tests, and you'll need to fly to Houston, and you need to fly tomorrow. And if they balk at it, they say, okay, that, you know, they're out. You know, they want to know how badly do you want to be one of us. And, and the other thing with sleep, you know, if you're an astronaut, you got to be used to being woken up in the middle of the night and not getting grumpy because that happens all the time. So, yeah, I, I was out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, not, you know, you would think so, but you know what? There's a condition called space stupids. And I, I thought at first that that was something about the radiation up there or that it was somehow affecting them. And uh, the person I talked to at NASA said, no, that's just the result of sleep deprivation, maybe the meds that they're on, stress, too much to do, and all the other indignities we heap on our astronauts. They're just stressed out. So it seems that they don't they don't get smarter. You would think so, though, with more. Yeah. yeah. What's the effect on The heart, yes, the heart, it gets deconditioned because it doesn't have to pump as hard. It gets lazy. So that's, they were also on Apollo 15, I think it was, there were some heart arrhythmias. Uh, Irwin, is it, I was going to say Bill Irwin, but he's a professional clown. <laughs> Jim, Jim Irwin, I think it was. He had these arrhythmias, I think a mild heart attack while he was up there. And they thought it was a potassium, lack of potassium. That's why Charlie Duke's like, I'm not going to do goddamn citrus fruits anymore. That was that was the effect. That was because of the arrhythmias. So there seems to be some some effect on, on the heart, although you don't really hear very much. And NASA's a little closed mouth about the long-term effects on astronauts. Okay, one more? One more? Okay. Is there yeah. any way to make artificial around there? Yes, yes, there is. Uh, you can... Um, you could, you've seen 2001, the movie 2001, you know, and Keir DeLay and, and the Gary whatever, they're jogging. It's that big, it's like a centri, it's a centrifuge. You basically, you're, you're spun outward. So you're pressed into the, you know, the bottom of the ring with, you know, earth gravity or half gravity or whatever it is, depending on how fast it's spinning. It's a little problematic because it's a big, great big moving part. And that's, tricky for the engineers, but they've looked into it and there's somebody started building one and then it got, you know, the budget got cut or something, but anyway, yeah. Is that it? No! Thank you so much. Mary Roach's book is titled Packing for Mars. I'll be right back after this word from Kerry Smith over at the Nature Podcast. Thanks, Steve. We've got butchered bones from millions of years ago and a large family of monkeys helping scientists to study anxiety. Plus, as always, the best of the rest of nature. The Nature Podcast is available at iTunes and at www.nature.com slash podcast. Well, that's it for part one of this Mary Roach extravaganza. Tune in very soon for part two in which Mary and I say things like... You check, oops, you check... That was not the rearview mirror. That <laughs> I just broke the shuttle toilet. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Jupiter and Mars. 
In other words, 